Every now and then, a story comes along that captures the public imagination. Cave divers in Thailand are setting up a rope safety line through the vast Tam Luang cave in preparation for an attempt to bring a group of boys to safety. The Suez Canal is the most important shipping artery in the world, but it's blocked. This year, it was... Two orca sightings have been reported today in a large-scale mission to relocate one baby orca with his family. Efforts to reunite the stranded orca tour remain unsuccessful. We've had a, a really strong effort trying to locate them. Uh, we had planes and helicopters and boats and everybody out looking for them. We've got a, a, an orca that's been heavily compromised, been through a really traumatic experience but the signs are encouraging. It captured the nation's hearts and hopes. But as time wore on, the bleak reality of the situation began to set in. The search for the family of baby Toav has reached its 10th day and rescuers are considering tough decisions about his future. It's a scenario where in New Zealand we don't hold marine mammals in captivity and so at some point we'll have to make potentially a difficult decision about what's the, what's the next best scenario that we can do for this orca. And regrettably, this story had a sad end. Tor, the orca calf which captured the nation's hearts, has died tonight. The orca died in his sea pen on Friday evening after being cared for at the Plimerton Boat Club for the past two weeks. Tor was believed to be between four and six months old. But that result wasn't for want of trying. The quest to reunite Tor with his pod went on for two weeks. It involved hundreds of people, tens of thousands of dollars, and you'd struggle to find a single person involved with the mission who said that wasn't money well spent. But why did we get so invested in Tor? Was it deep-seated guilt on the woes we humans have inflicted on the planet? Was it because he was cute and reminded us of Free Willy? Was this over the top or the very best of humanity? Did we just try to help because we could? And when it comes to these kinds of situations, which crop up a lot in New Zealand, how much is too much? I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the ethics of when, where and why we, as a society, go out on a limb to save a wild animal. Asher Sorrell is a PhD candidate at the University of Otago's Bioethics Centre. When you first read about what was happening with Tor, what did you think? Was this kind of like a thought experiment come to life for you? Yeah, well, I think these cases have come up a bit in the past. Like in 2016, there was the case of Bob the orca, I think, stranded in Tauranga. He is just so much better. It is a relief, I feel like. A, a proud mum. <laughs> so yeah, these these things come up occasionally and it definitely overlaps with the research that I do. I mostly look at free-living wild animals, so looking at their welfare just in a natural state. But yeah, definitely, you know, if an orca becomes stranded, then, you know, do we have obligations to, to, to help the orca? I think certainly it's an interesting ethical question and a key focus of animal ethicists who who want to actually you know apply their their work. Well, what do you think? Do you think we have an obligation to help the orca? Yeah, I think any effort that we can make to help wild animals, whether or not they're suffering from human causes or just from natural causes, is generally good. And that's just 
on the basis that, you know, welfare is good to promote. So we kind of think about, you know, what are the reasons for wanting to help humans? Well, you know, some humans suffer uh, needlessly, and if we can do something to prevent their suffering, then, you know, we seem to think that we have good moral reasons to do so, or at the very least it's ethically permissible to do so. And those same reasons extend for non-humans as well. So, you know, many non-humans have the capacity to suffer. They have an interest in living and in, you know, nurturing relationships with their family members and and doing all sorts of things. And so insofar as it's within our capacity to actually help those animals and improve their welfare, then I think, you know, it's certainly something worth worth doing. Why do you think people got so invested in this? Yeah, so people are pretty interested in orcas just generally because they're, you know, large mammals and they look very cute. And they because Free Willy, very... <laughs> Asher. It's because Free Willy, isn't it? Yeah, because Free Willy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, come on, Willy. I know you can do it, boy. I know you can jump this wall. Come on. I believe in you, Willy. Yeah, so I, I kind of think uh, there may have been, you know, just it's a story that's very easy to kind of publicize and um, attracts a lot of attention and people kind of become quite emotionally invested in you know, the plight of Tor the whale, which is understandable because, you know, uh, yeah, as you said, we see whales in movies and nature documentaries and stuff like that. Here's an impossible hypothetical question for you. Mm. Do you think people would have cared this much if it was a giant squid? Well, it's kind of interesting to, to use that example because I suppose giant squids are quite rare, so maybe people would have cared in a different way in, in the sense in which they're just rare and they're interesting organisms. But you're right to suggest that maybe if it was like a, a less cuddly and maybe less kind of rare invertebrate or, or some other kind of like ugly creature that we can't really uh, sympathise with as easily, then probably it wouldn't have received as much attention in the news. Whether that means that we should give differential consideration to that organism is, is a different question, you know. You said earlier that... In circumstances where they can help, you know, there is an obligation to help animals. Mm. Animals have the capacity to suffer, and we should try to alleviate suffering and stuff like that. However, I put this to you. A baby orca being separated from its pod and dying alone in the ocean is not a tragedy. It is life. Discuss. Mm. So that is a very common sentiment regarding, you know, most wild animals. We kind of think, you know, they live in nature um, on their own, and they're free to, to live and die, and that's just that's just life, right? But um, I tend to think, you know, we have a different attitude when it comes to members of our own species. So, you know, if, if somebody in another country is, is dying um, or, you know, is malnourished or starving or a victim of um, war or whatever, then we think at the very least it's permissible to, to render some aid or support to them and, and to help, you know, uh, alleviate their suffering or, or improve their welfare. And I tend to think that, um, you know, there seems to be a bit of a kind of disconnect when we consider the lives of free-living wild animals. You know, we think, oh, well, you know, death and life is just a part of nature. But actually, if it is within our capacity to, you know, save an infant uh, who's been separated from his mother and, you know, he wants to return to his mother, he wants to live his life and he doesn't want to, to, to suffer in this way, then, yeah, I, I don't see why we shouldn't render that support. These are stories that, of course, we want there to be a positive outcome. Dr Elizabeth Fenton is a lecturer in bioethics at Otago University. This kind of story uh, tugs at your heartstrings in a very human way. Here's a juvenile creature lost without its family, and that's obviously going to, you know, you want there to be a positive outcome. On the other hand, you know, these tragedies happen all the time in nature, 
we're, we're not involved, we're not aware of them. That doesn't make them necessarily less tragic, but it is part of the way nature works. You know, we can't save everything. And it can sound very heartless to say, well, we let nature take its course, but there are environmental ethicists who argue that when we interfere, we sort of diminish something about this creature. We diminish its wildness. And perhaps that means that not interfering is, um, on that kind of argument, ethically preferable to interfering. But on the other hand, that kind of argument seems to assume that we humans are sort of separate from nature and we're sort of onlookers to wild nature and not really part of it. And that's um, often considered to be quite a dangerous assumption as well. So it's a little bit of both. You, you sort of want to interfere in the sense that you want it to have a positive outcome and perhaps that depends on some kind of human interference. On the other hand... Do these creatures somehow become less wild if we interfere? And does that diminish their kind of wildness value? Rescuing happy feet, the emperor penguin that's made international headlines has been a waste of time and money, according to a Wellington biologist. Wayne Linklater is a senior lecturer at Victoria University's Centre for Biodiversity and Restoration Ecology. He says trying to rehabilitate birds is often futile and can get in the way of real conservation work. I believe the kind thing to do would have been to euthanise happy feet. There are a lot of reasons why. The first is that actually the enormous resources to release that bird uh, safely back into the wild would have been better spent elsewhere. We are facing a biodiversity extinction crisis on a massive scale in New Zealand and across the world. That 30-odd thousand plus that's going to be spent sending happy feet back to the wild, could have restored habitat that would have supported many populations of many species, not just one bird. The cost of looking after baby orca tour has cost taxpayers around $10,000 so far, not including Department of Conservation staffing costs. Are you convinced by people who say this is a ludicrous amount of money to be spending on saving the life of an orca which may not even be saved in the end? Yeah, so I think there are different things to consider in that case. Um, you know, one is say we had like 10000 or 15000 or however much money it cost, um, say we, we were considering spending that amount of money and it was guaranteed that the life of Tor would be saved. In that case, it would just be a simple matter of deciding, you know, is the life of, of Tor, you know, an infant orca, um, worth this amount of money? Obviously, in the case that actually occurred, um, it was uncertain whether or not we would be able to reunite Tor with his mother and the rest of his pod. And also whether or not, you know, he would recover from the injuries that he sustained from from being stranded on the beach. And so there are a lot of kind of uncertainties in the case. Um, So it's difficult to kind of make a decision purely based on is spending this amount of money going to net, you know, this amount of of life years for for this animal. I can understand where where that's coming from. We we make these kinds of trade-offs all the time in terms of um, budgetary or financial decisions. We make trade-offs in terms of what we value, what's important, what's important from a conservation standpoint, but also possibly taking into account broader, perhaps more abstract values like humans understanding the kind of wildlife that inhabit our waters, Mm. people in New Zealand understanding that these animals exist, what their value is in the ecosystem. Possibly there are bigger 
it's not just about how much money did it cost to futilely save that that one creature, but did that whole exercise result in something more valuable, uh, even though the animal wasn't saved? Was there something of, of greater value achieved? Um, so that that could be part of the, the uh, discussion as well. Do we learn something? Do we enhance our relationship with the natural world through these kinds of efforts, these kinds of rescue efforts? But again, it's the same. You know, we don't put a huge amount of money into rescuing creatures that we that we can't see. Um, there's a real value in um, being able to see and touch. There's something tangible here. So you know, that's often what's going to attract. Uh, the rescue money because we do this with humans as well um, if a human uh, needs rescuing if it's an identified named individual we're going to put a lot more resources into that rescue than some abstract number of people who suffer from some condition for example yeah. it's something about that identified individual that seems to demand or compel some kind of uh, investment the numbers don't always add up if you're just totaling up the numbers. But there is something to be said for that desire to save an identified life. As long as his parameters are OK, as long as he is responding OK, we can maintain this. We're concerned we don't want him to become a yo-yo whale going from the pool into the sea pen because that's, that's not good for him either. He can't go on indefinitely swimming around in a tiny area because that's not really fair either but I also know that if he was sent out to the wild that would be pretty harsh for him as he's not really old enough to look after himself so if it's going to be the kindest option it's going to be really really sad for all of us that have followed his journey but it might be what they have to do. Why are we interfering? Are we interfering because it's in the animal's best interests or are we interfering because it makes us feel good? That's a great question, and that, that has been a big part of my response to this situation. Exactly that. Who, whose interests are we serving? Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we can't sort of serve, possibly serve both interests in some sense. It may be best for the animal to um, have its uh, return, you know, return to its pod, and also it makes us feel that we're enhancing our relationship with nature. So it is possible to advance both of those interests possibly at one time. Um, But on the other hand, you know, we don't want to sacrifice the animal's interests simply in order to advance our own. Yeah, and I guess that um, particularly towards the end there, there were scientists who were coming out and saying, look, you know, at a certain point in this arc, the best thing for everybody involved is going to be to euthanise this orca and yet imagine the PR disaster if Doc came out and said, yeah, a Doc Ranger uh, shot Tor in the head this morning because that was the best thing to do, you know? Yeah, there has been, I mean, there there are, I'm sure, many cases like this. One that sticks in my mind from, um, I did my graduate work in environmental philosophy in the United States, and the case that we always talked about was the case of a moose stranded in ice in a national park. Now, a set of uh, hikers came across the moose, saw it struggling in the ice, and wanted to help it, possibly shoot it, put it out of its misery, or possibly try to get it out of the ice. But the argument was that this was not the right thing to do. It was important to let the moose 
um, die of its own accord to uh, it would be important food for creatures the next year when the ice is melted and it's not our role to try and save all these struggling animals. So it's it's not necessarily in the broader interests of the um, ecosystem and it may not necessarily be in that animal's interests to try to preserve its life at all costs. In 2005, the German film director Werner Herzog made a film called Grizzly Man about a guy called Timothy Treadwell. Treadwell was an environmental activist and a bear enthusiast. For 13 summers, he went out and he lived among the grizzly bears in southern Alaska. Treadwell shot hundreds of hours of video footage with the bears. He truly seemed to have a close and kind of mystical relationship with many of them. He was convinced he was protecting them and that they recognised and loved him. In the autumn of 2003, Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend were killed and eaten by one of the bears they were trying to protect. In the film, Werner Herzog observes... What haunts me is that in all the faces of all the bears that Treadwell ever filmed, I discover no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature. I think I tend to agree um, with it. You know, I, I think... Nature uh, in and of itself is um, somewhat indifferent to the welfare or the well-being of individuals that live in nature, you know. Really, different organisms have evolved only in regards to, you know, uh, whether or not different traits will contribute to gene transmission, uh, regardless of of the effect of that on on actually how happy the lives of the animals are. So, you know, I, I tend to have quite a pessimistic view about life in nature. I think most wild animals lead very poor lives and... Um, and yeah, I think we should we should recognise that and try and you know push past this idyllic view of nature that many of us have. I think it's very perceptive because I think it's certainly possible for us to uh, see a relationship that isn't there to project, possibly even to anthropomorphise the animals, to imagine that they feel about us the way we feel about them, and that in that instance, in that case, that relationship didn't exist perhaps the way the human thought that it did. And so there was a real danger there in anthropomorphizing those bears. I don't think that's what Timothy Treadwell was trying to do, but it is almost an imposition of human value onto the animal that perhaps is imagined rather than real. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you want to get in touch, email us, thedetail at rnz.co.nz. Alexia Russell produced today's episode and Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Dr Elizabeth Fenton and Asha Sorrell. Matewa.